0: Southern skies. Online
1: media.
2: This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Aus Runways, Australia's most cost effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one month trial today at ozrunways.com and by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet era L39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au/pcdu for the fastest ride in the country.
1: Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode number 93 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australian-Pacific point of view. On a very windy night here in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Fisher, and no doubt battening down the hatches in his part of Melbourne, it's Grant McHaren. How are you, mate?
3: Hey, not too bad, mate, not too bad, and yes, I definitely am battening down the hatches and cancelling our flights for the next few days. It's just going to be too dang windy. In fact, I think it's almost windy enough to make the uh, weather chain lift off its moorings and uh, show a bit of uh, horizontal attitude.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you what, mate, we've had um, what I would describe as a more traditional winter here in Melbourne this year. I guess we've been sort of, uh, you know, although uh, people talk about the drought and all that sort of stuff, I guess in previous years the upshot of that was that we've had some mild winters, which is uh, probably more conducive to flying not only balloons but anything else, but uh, certainly this winter here in Melbourne, it's been a lot colder and uh, we've had a lot more rain and uh, now we're coming into uh, springtime and that means it's very windy, which means not much balloon flying.
3: No, not at the moment and of course spring also means those cold snaps with uh, rain showers, so uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know. Since the breaking of the drought, everything's been up in the air, so to speak, except us. But it's, it seems to be like uh, you talk to some of the guys who were flying over Melbourne very early in the uh, late 80s, and uh, they tell you that it was just when they'd shut down for the whole of winter and not even bother trying to fly.
1: Coming up in this show, we'll be chatting with the federal member for Ferris, Susan Lay. She's a commercial pilot, a former air traffic controller, uh, and the co-convener of the uh, newly formed Parliamentary Friends of Aviation group. We're also going to catch up with Mark Pracy from JetRide Australia and Pracy Racing for an update on their preparations for this year's Reno Air Races. David Brown from the Sport Aviation Association of Australia will be dropping by to tell us all about AusFly which is very rapidly approaching and we'll have a couple of shout outs at the end and a couple of announcements about uh, some things that are happening here at uh, Playing Crazy Down Under that are very exciting and uh, very positive for the future. But before all of that, you may remember at the end of the last episode I mentioned that our team was expanding and I'm not just talking about my waistline. Uh, For a long time we've been uh, keen to uh, expand our presence over to the west coast. It's not always easy easy for us to do that when we're stuck over here in Melbourne. Uh, It's a fair way away and it's uh, not an easy commute to get over to the west. So uh, with that in mind, uh, we've been lucky uh, to recruit a new member to the team based in Perth. It's Ben Jones. G'day Ben.
4: G'day Steve, g'day Grant and uh, hello to all the playing crazy down under listeners all around the world.
1: Well, uh, welcome on board, mate, and we're very happy to have you, and thanks for volunteering. And, uh, you know, you'll probably regret that because, as Grant will tell you, I'm very good at finding lots of work for other people to do.
4: Uh, That's all right. I think we can sort it out.
3: Yeah, he tries to keep us all up where he is with his um, editing. He thinks that, you know, if he's spending 40 hours editing an episode, we should spend 40 or 50 hours getting ready for the next one. The problem is he's right. I might (laughs) just have to spend another
4: 40 hours at an air show, i say. Yeah, well... Oh, the agony.
1: <laughs> ben, uh, you're very you're pretty heavily involved over there in the West, over there in Perth with the aviation scene, of course. But uh, perhaps if you could maybe kick it off by just telling the audience a bit about yourself and uh, just what it is you do over there with flying.
4: With flying, I started uh, flying gliders when I was 15 uh, with the Air Training Corps. Went through to solo level. Then uh, eventually, a year later, progressed onto powered flying and uh, have been flicking between the two ever since, really. i
1: would tell you what, actually, it's uh, always surprising to me just how many people actually come through from uh, starting off in gliding. It's certainly nothing that something that I wouldn't have considered when I started flying. So, um, I mean, is there a lot of gliding that goes on over there in the West?
4: There certainly is. There's three main clubs uh, based around Perth within, I'd say, a 200-kilometre 200, 200 range from the CBD, um, Beverly Soaring Society, who... I'm a member of. Uh, we have Cunderdon Gliding Club and also the Narogen Gliding Club.
3: I'm guessing you're getting some pretty good weather at the moment for going
4: gliding. Uh, you would think so, but not really. <laughs> the uh, The winter is dragging on a little bit, but we have had a couple of recorded flights of 100, maybe 200 kilometres in the last weekend or two. So I think we could safely say, hopefully, that the winter is broken and we're starting to get into some decent uh, thermaling. Great. What kind of gliders are you flying, mate? It depends what's there on the day, really. Um, <laughs> ASK-21, Puchatech, has I just sold
3: my share in a uh, standard Cirrus, so I was flying that too. So, so I guess you've had some time on Blaniks and things like that when you were uh, doing your license. Certainly, I uh, did
4: my initial flying training uh, on L thirteen Blaniks. Uh, Victor Hotel Golf Indigo Sierra was my aircraft that I learned to fly on, and we first went solo in. So. <laughs> Yes, they're a beautiful stick and, stick and rudder aircraft to fly.
3: Oh yeah, very good. And it's uh, the the creaks are wonderful as you pull through the top of a loop, but they're a lot of fun to fly.
4: Excellent. Yes, you uh, pull over the top and uh, slap the ailerons over to do a roll off the top of a loop and then you hear some interesting creaks and groans, but it, al- <laughs> it always pulls out and it keeps going.
1: I think it's the silence that would, I'd find that kind of unnerving, I think the first couple of times if I went up there and did, actually, I would like to try gliding one of these days, but I think the silence would, would be rather unnerving just to start off with.
3: Well, you've you've, you've got a fair bit of slipstream noise, mate. It's not totally silent and when you're, you know, I remember diving the Blanex down and getting up a bit of speed to go through sync and you got quite a bit of a whoosh around you.
1: Yeah, but the whoosh is one, sir, and it's the lack of lycoming that would bother me, I think.
4: Oh, we do have a lycoming, but we usually we uh, lose it at about 2,000
3: two foot <laughs> when we release the rope. I, one thing I loved when I was doing AeroToe was the uh, behind a, like a pipe of Pawnee, you'd use the bubble canopy, the the pilot's raised ca- uh, sitting position canopy and so on as your artificial horizon and just bisect that with the tail and the horizontal stabilizers and try and keep the stabilizers aligned with his wing mirrors. And uh, yeah, it made, made for a lot of fun. I found once I was told that angle of it, um, I found AeroToe toe became a little easier
4: you certainly can use reference reference points on the uh, toe plane like the pawnee to position and judge your position behind the aircraft and toe but uh, most of the traditional methods uh, we take off in a low toe position in australia and then as on climb out we will gradually increase our height behind the tug until we hit the slipstream of the wings Um, and then we duck down another meter or two yeah, so that's that's the most effective position when you're in a low tow. Uh, toe. Yeah, we never so. did.
3: We never did high tow. We were always down below, but we we're pretty careful not to get too low. But that was the that was the thing. You'd come up into the slipstream to release. Yes, and you get the buffer of
4: the aircraft, and you uh, yeah. yeah pull a handle and peel off to the right and uh, go your separate ways.
1: Hey, uh, Ben. uh, Now, it's not only gliding, of course, that you're interested in. uh, According to the bio here that you sent us, uh, you studied CPL and ATPL subjects, but you didn't end up going into commercial aviation. No.
4: After I finished high school, uh, year 12 in uh, WA, I Always wanted to be a pilot. So I went off to TAFE and studied uh, my CPL subjects and also my ATPL subjects. After a year of studying CPL and ATPL, uh, it was time to somehow fund the, at, but back then at that stage, it was $50,000 to do your commercial license, uh, IFR rating and twin rating to become a junior uh, commercial pilot. And I went to mum and dad and said, can I have $50,000 to do my commercial license and I got promptly told by my father that because of me and my sister coming into the family, uh, he had to stop flying for 18 years. So I <laughs> knew I was not going to get the money out of my parents.
3: <laughs> Ouch. Yes. First parental bank says no. Exactly.
4: <laughs> um, so I, I was working all the way through high school um, doing the old glass work behind a bar, mixing drinks and pouring beers. But it was, wasn't until I went out and did some work experience as a commercial pilot. So I jumped in the right-hand seat of a 210 for a couple of days and, you know, saw charter operations as they happen in the real life. Um, and I said to the pilot, I said, you know, you must be earning a mint. And he looked at me and he says, I think I'm on about 26000 a year. Um, <laughs> and I've got about $60,000 debt. And at that point, I decided, hmm, I'm going to have to fund this somehow. Yep. And my other passion at the time was doing electrical and electronic work. So I decided that maybe getting a trade as an electrician would be a better thing for the short term um, to hey, get an education and a uh, trade school that I can fall back on later in life. And then that would fund my commercial flying. But uh, yeah, yeah, as things go, it didn't really turn out like that. And <laughs> I am... <laughs> Still a hard hard-working uh, industrial electrician, and uh, I basically fly for uh, for fun at this stage. Yeah, that's not a bad way to be, is it? No, it's I can't complain. I, um, <laughs> I s- certainly haven't lost the uh, the passion and the desire to become a commercial pilot um, and an ATPL pilot, but uh, one day I might just get fed up and go and do it.
1: Now, you're into RAOs. You've got a GA license, of course, but you're into RAOs as well. Is the RAOs sign, uh, how is it over there in the West?
4: Uh, I would say it's pretty active at this stage. Unfortunately, we've had one or two uh, or the two main flying training schools sort of fall over in WA at this stage um, due to varying uh, reasons. So there's a bit of a um, RAO's training gap at the moment. There are still one or two places that do it around Perth, but you're looking at a near on two hour drive out of Perth CBD to get to these. One one is uh, down in Bunbury and the other one is actually (laughs) right out in the wheat belt. Fair hike. It certainly is. You'd, you'd have to be committed if you were doing ab initio training at this stage, if you were fresh off the street and said, well, I want to get a licence, um, and then you look at your training options and then, yeah, unfortunately, uh, there's no 15-minute solution just down the road. Well,
1: we might talk in a little bit a bit more in general about the aviation scene there in Perth uh, for many of our listeners, and particularly our overseas listeners who uh, you know, are perhaps not familiar with, uh, with that part of Australia. But we want to go just a little bit on here so people know exactly who you are. You're a, a RAF reservist, but uh, you're also uh, – building a, uh, a Corby Starlet, a CJ1 Corby Starlet, so uh, gee, um, yeah, that must be uh, a good way to take up a lot of your spare time, I, I would imagine.
4: Oh, well, yes, if I did have any spare time, I certainly don't have any spare time now. <laughs> or space. Yeah, Well, yes, the aircraft is actually out of the house now, it's in the workshop out the back, so <laughs> yes, for about two years I had uh, a partial fuselage and a uh, empennage sitting in my uh, kitchen and dining room. Fortunately, it's a small aircraft. Uh, yes, but it's also a small house, so... <laughs>
1: <laughs> i tell you what, there is no uh, way on earth I'd get away with doing that here.
4: Oh, well, there are some sacrifices you make in your life to uh, fit aviation in. And uh, yes, I've, I've made a couple of those to uh, keep aviation in the forefront.
3: Well, uh, given my, the famous phrase, I'd never fly an aircraft that allowed me to build it. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no chance of that happening. So I'm safe because, uh, yeah, I'm all left thumbs. There's no way I'd want to try. I, I, I had enough fun with plastic models and bolster aircraft, but yeah, I'm just not keen on scaling the whole thing up
4: Uh, it's it's really not that uh, difficult Uh, if you can follow some instructions and do a bit of uh, internet searching through some uh, you know chat groups for the aircraft specific information you, yeah and you can get hold of people around you that have built aircraft before and are knowledgeable um, pretty much anybody can uh, can have a go at making a uh, successful aircraft
1: it's one of those things where you, when we look at people that are scratch building aircraft and, and making kits like this it's always a, a multiple year project is that the way you're approaching it uh
4: not out of choice but yes it's a, it's a <laughs> certainly a multiple uh, multiple year project Um, I think if I look through my builder's logs, uh, I officially started the project about seven years ago.
3: Yeah. Let me guess. It's been 90% done for about 80% of the time.
4: Uh, Exactly. Yeah. 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 (laughs) It's well, my, my, my father um, bought the, the plans to the Corby Starlet many, Years ago, when I was when I was a little kid, um, and I sort of grew up looking at these roller plans every now and again and studying them, and, and then Dad decided that he would go off and build a different aircraft, and I said, "Well, what are you doing with the plans?" So I conveniently swapped them when he was out one day and uh, come home and started cutting wood. So <laughs> now the Corby Starlet is is not a kit aircraft. Uh, not all aircraft are kits. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot a lot of people think you you know ring up America, pay them fifty thousand dollars, and a big crater rise this Corby Starlet is a uh, pure scratch build so traditionally what you would do is you would ring up a supplier of the plans or John Corby himself who is based over in the eastern states, not too far from you guys, transfer a uh, sum of money and then uh, a couple of weeks later you get a, a your mailing to with a you know, roll of about 36 uh, massive drawings in it. Like uh, when everybody was a kid they would look at their favourite model model aircraft magazine and they would uh, send away their three or four dollars in a prepaid uh, envelope and then uh, a month later, you would get a plan from a model aircraft, and you would go and source your bolster from your local model shop and glue, and you would you would build it off the plan. This is pretty much exactly what I'm doing, but I'm not building an aircraft. It's a one to one, you know, scale model aircraft. It's a real aircraft.
3: I'll well, having uh, remembering how some of my bolster aircraft turned out. Go for it, mate. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll let you have all that fun. I think the closest I could get to doing something like this would have to be one of those. Um, all but the last 51% type kits or go, I'd, I'd probably actually feel a lot better if I went and did it with one of the uh, kit manufacturers where they have those two weeks to taxi kind of programs. Yes, yes. Two weeks to taxi isn't quite
4: two weeks to taxi. No. <laughs>
3: No, not unless you can sacrifice your life and take four weeks off. There's a
4: lot of uh, behind-the-scenes work done by a lot of paid builders by the company yes. to uh, do that. So, yeah, I'm not I'm not knocking the system, but um, what they would do in two or three weeks full-time just scrapes in for the uh, 51% rule if you were to build the aircraft in, in the US under those rules and regulations.
1: Well, we'll certainly have to keep track of that as time goes on there, Ben, and uh, see how it goes on and perhaps uh, maybe uh, see some photos uh, over time and maybe even some videos if you know at the time when it gets flying.
4: Certainly uh, it won't be finished next week so uh, there'll <laughs> still be certainly uh, lots of options for uh viewing photos, and uh, there is there is a couple of um, montage videos of my aircraft um, currently being built on the uh, on the internet on YouTube.
1: Well, Ben, uh, let's talk uh, more generally about uh, the aviation scene over in the west, and we might start with Perth. Now, I've only been to Perth twice in my life, and it's it's a beautiful city. Both times I went there was for the Red Bull Air Race, and of course, you know, they set up the little race uh, airport right there on the banks of the Swan River. I believe that was originally the, uh, the Perth airport.
4: Yes. Now, I'm not a historian or a history buff. By any means, but uh, yes, I believe it was the uh, the first airfield uh, in Perth, WA, mainly used for, I believe, mail mail runs and stuff like that.
1: Very conveniently located there, right smack in the middle of the city. Um, It certainly worked well for the race airport. Perth is is not a a huge city. Um, That's actually one of the advantages I think it would have from a training environment because uh, people perhaps training and and basing themselves out of Jandicott there, I mean, they're straight out and straight into a training area, I would imagine.
4: It is. If if you do a departure out of Jandicott and you, uh, you turn left as you're heading towards the coast, you uh, pretty much within about five minutes you hit the uh, the danger area, which is the uh, the training area. So uh, it's it's not a very long transition from the airport itself. The only issue that you have is uh, nowadays you might have a fifteen or twenty minute delay on the ground whilst taxiing to actually try and get a slot for a uh, departure or an arrival.
1: And that's the other thing that, that really surprised me too and, and, and really coming from a position of ignorance the first time I went over there and I sort of, you know, jaunted down there to Jandakot to have a look. I guess I had it in my mind that it wouldn't be that busy but uh, as, you, as you say there, it's not the case. There's a lot of training going on and I, I believe there's a couple of the uh, the Asian airlines, are they basing themselves out of there?
4: Yes, uh, there is too. Uh, China Southern and Singapore Flying College uh, based out of Jandakot, where they do a lot of their ab initio training all the way through to uh, their medium endorsements so uh, you succeed aircraft and then they go on to if they're lucky enough um, citations and stuff like that
3: makes me think of Marabin here it sounds very similar in that respect uh, the training area is reasonably close and uh, yeah these days you got a queue well it's certainly uh certainly a different
4: world like i um, when i was 16 and uh, did my ab training out in the bush with the air force cadets uh, once we went solo then we basically handed off and we go back to janicot and do the training um and it wasn't wasn't too uncommon to go and do a sortie out in the training area where you where you might be doing advanced stalls or something like that and you would come back and your instructor would say you know, you know, know, how about we go and shoot some circuits, you know, no problems. Um, And it was was fairly common to have 13 aircraft in the circuit area. Um, And nowadays, due to safety concerns, which I think is uh, Australia wide, uh, at this stage, I think there's a maximum of six aircraft allowed in the circuit area at once. So, yeah, it's sort of the, if, if you're an ab initio student learning out of Janicot and you want to go and do a session of circuits, you might
3: basically just have to sit there and wait for your slot to come up. Or go find another airport, get out and go do them there. But uh, I think it's uh, six aircraft per runway per tower operator. I think it's how they figure it out.
4: Well, if, if you're using the uh, parallel runways at Janicot, one's arrivals and departures, and the other one's uh, circuit work effectively you've only got one runway to do any circuits on uh, yeah. unless you unless you do a uh, a sneaky entry on the arrivals and departures and on downwind request one or two circuits on <laughs> They might let you do it if they're having a good day. Um, If not, you get the old uh, negative, denied, you know, (laughs) make make full stop and, uh, yeah, please telephone the tower when you get on the ground and shut down.
1: Now, the other interesting thing about uh, the airspace and operations around Perth is you've got Jandakot, of course, out to the south and I guess out to the east you've got Perth Airport, but up to the north there uh, you've got uh, RAF Base Pierce. So I guess you would see uh, a lot of uh, military aircraft flying around the the skies of Perth. Uh,
4: You would think so, but um, you don't actually see all that... Much. Um most most of the flying that the uh the raft do out of Pierce, they head north of Pierce or out to the east. It's it's very rare that you'll actually see a PC nine or a hawk fly, you know, southbound from Pierce over Perth. CBD and even South.
1: Yeah, and of course, uh, Ben, the ref uh, very recently had an air show there uh, at, at Perth, uh, which made a lot of headlines and uh, obviously had some fantastic aircraft there, quite a wide variety. Uh, did you uh, make it up there on the day?
4: I certainly did. I went up there for two days, uh, the Saturday and Sunday, and uh, had a look at the air show. It was very good. Um, lots of uh, heavy iron there, which was uh, always good to see. Probably mm. not as much as you would see at a uh, air show like uh, Avalon, but certainly the US had uh, KC-135 tanker there and I think there was a Singaporean Air Force Hercules there, plus our Hercules and Orions and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a good show.
1: It certainly sounds, been like uh, the aviation scene, as I mentioned at the top here, is, is quite vibrant over there. And uh, one of the other features they've got over there at the moment that uh, you're quite involved in is uh, simulator centres. you want to tell us a bit about uh, your involvement with that?
4: Yeah, there's there's three uh, simulator centres in Perth at this stage. Uh, there's one at Janicot, uh, one in Northbridge, and uh, just, well, Two weeks ago now we had a, uh, a third one open uh, out in Willerton and uh, I uh, ended up picking up a job there as a 737-800-NG uh, uh, instructor in the sim. So that's uh, interesting work. Jet Flight Simulator Perth is the company.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, there's there's quite a lot of these. I know springing up here on over on the east coast, there's, there's quite a number of these simulator centres around, but it's, it's interesting to see that they're also springing up there in the west. But it only makes sense because, as we mentioned, there's a lot of people at, over on that side of the country that, that want to do this sort of stuff.
4: Well, obviously I don't know how the other two centres are going, the one in Northridge or the one at Janicott. Um but we have been open in Willerton for just under three weeks now, and uh, yeah, we have bookings for <laughs> as long as we can see, so no, yeah. it's really good. Our simulator isn't a exact replica but it is pretty darn close to the real thing real 737 aircraft it's not a certified category B uh, logable simulator we mainly cater for the person that comes off the street that would like to see if they could actually fly a 737 if heaven forbid the two pilots peeled over and they had a mouse (laughs) and they could try and fly the aircraft
3: so ate the fish
1: (laughs) yes every private pilot's dream (laughs) yes
3: yes do we have a doctor or a pilot on board (laughs) no it's also the fact that since 9-11 with all these cockpit doors being closed. You you can't go up and chat to the pilots. You can't see what it's like. And uh, these kind of simulators that are open to the public are doing a great job of letting people answer the question of what is it like when you're in there flying? Yeah, it's, it's a big
4: shame I can remember as a kid 20 years ago, 25 years ago, um, hopping on a uh, aircraft and making the you know the long six hour flight over to uh, Sydney or Melbourne, and uh, the cockpit door was always open. In fact, oh, there yeah. was no there was no door on the cockpit back then. All you'd have to do is you know grab a hostie and say, "Can I please go and have a look at the pilot and you know see the pilots?" And uh, yeah. I I don't think once I uh, ever got refused the option of going up into the cockpit and talking to the captain and first officer and. Uh, once or twice, I um, would sit for about an hour or two uh, in the jump pilot seat. So, yep. and talking about them and. You know what they do and uh, it was all very interesting and unfortunately the uh, the kids of the generations coming up won't have that uh, privilege of uh, seeing what actually happens in a um, commercial airline cockpit.
1: It's not only the privilege, it's something I bang on a lot about on this show is being able to build the dream for these kids and I, I think that's one of the really important things that these simulator centres that are popping up everywhere, uh, that's one of the really important things that they can do, like you say, you can at least get them into that sort of general environment and let them get a real taste of it and, and be wowed by the sight of all the gauges or the glass screens or whatever they have in there these (laughs) days because, uh, like you say, it's it's about as close as they're going to get.
4: Yeah, it's definitely good. Where we, uh, our Jet Flight Simulator, Perth. All the guys which are sitting in the uh, first officer seat, like me, um, we're all pilots of, of varying uh, you know real license types. Some of the guys that we have are uh, ex air force F one eleven pilots, and we have uh, one or two jet jockeys and stuff like that. So there's a there's a big mix, and there's a lot of people that have um, you know have actually flown in anger with aviation as a, as a career and uh, know the ins and outs of the uh, ATPL system, and uh, it's really good because the general client that we get uh, at this stage is somebody who comes off this street or their wife buys their husband a uh, half an hour mm-hmm. an hour um, you know joy ride and they come along and they ask questions about you know is this real and what we've done in the last hour you know is this what an airline job is like and they're actually quite shocked to realize that they've been flying a, a 737 you know hands on all the way no autopilot for an hour and uh, they you know they're shocked when you say well no actually in the real world they would advanced the, uh, the throttles or the thrust levers, pitch the aircraft up to 15 degrees. As soon as they're clear of the runway and positive rate of climb, the gear comes up, and after they climb through about 3,000 feet, they uh, put their feet up and hit the autopilot button. So they're like, wow. So, yeah, when you explain to them that you've had more you know, hands-on stick time than what you would do in the real life, they're um, actually quite shocked. Yeah, and, and some of the uh, the customers that we get come through are, you know, you mad flight sim enthusiasts and uh, they're, they're actually really the uh, the interesting people that I like to fly with because um, not necessarily they come in and they, you know, I know how to fly an aircraft, but you have the option of trying to polish their flying with a bit of um, knowledge from uh, real world instructing in real aircraft. You can sort of polish them and give them pointers and, uh, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. And so they're really happy and it's, it's brilliant to actually... Actually, sit in the aircraft and go and fly an hour or two-hour-long sector and do SIDs and stars and and stuff like that. So it, it's actually interesting for me. Certainly, bones you up on your uh, ILS and uh, VOR work.
1: I imagine <laughs> it would, yeah. Ben's supplied us with a picture and a bio, so we'll be putting that up on our website. You can find that at playingcrazydownunder.com and just click on the Who We Are tab and um, I'll uh, task Grant with putting that up there as we finish recording this episode. And uh, oh, thanks. We, we might also plonk that in the newsletter, which I'll also task Grant with making. Oh. And of course, uh, Ben's got a recorder, so uh, he'll be getting around and recording the occasional uh, interview over there in Perth here and there as they come along. And uh, if anybody has any suggestions for uh, stories, you can send that in here to us at uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com and we'll pass that along. But uh, in the meantime, we better head from Perth across to Canberra. Ben, would you like to stick around? Oh, I certainly will, guys, definitely. No problem. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking to the member for Farah in the Lower House, Susan Lane.
4: Have the need, the need for speed? Jetride Australia is a premier fighter experience in the country and the perfect gift for every budding top gun. From mild to wild, Jetride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind blowing ride of your life. To make your dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jetride.
1: Forget the rest, fly with the best. Plan your flight, fly your plan. With Oz, Oz Runways. Runways, Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS, complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breeze, and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes Store or visit OzRunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium, and you're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Joining us on the line is the federal member for Ferret in the lower house, it's uh, Susan Lee. Susan, thanks very much for spending some time with us.
5: Good morning, Steve and Grant. How are we going today? Good, actually. Parliament sitting. Uh, I have no idea what the temperature is outside. I feel as if I've been in here cocooned for weeks. <laughs> and um, when I go down to the chamber, it's all happening. So... It's a very interesting time in Australian politics, I have to say. It
0: certainly is, it
1: certainly is. Now Susan, I'm looking on your website here and it lists here that you're the Shadow Minister for Employment Participation and the Shadow Minister for Childcare and Early Childhood Learning. But uh, looking at your bio, I'm wondering why you're not the Shadow Minister for Aviation.
5: Oh, I'd love to be. Uh, In my dreams, there actually isn't a Minister for Aviation. It comes in the transport portfolio. Although interestingly, the very first member for Farah, David Fairburn, was a Minister for Aviation and he was a return World War II. To flying Ace uh, joined Parliament in 1948 and the second member for Farah Wolf Fife was Minister for the Air as they called it then so uh, I'm not suggesting there's a bit of destiny built into my um, uh, and, and by the way the third member for Farah was Tim Fisher and I'm the fourth um, but uh, I, I, look I think there should be a Ministry for Aviation because I think it gets a bit lost in the transport portfolio
3: Total agreement
1: We'll with Tim mm. Fisher of course Tim Fisher has a transport affiliation because he's a, a big train nut isn't he
5: He's a very big, very fast train person and look, he's back in Australia. He did three years overseas in the Vatican and he's, a, he's energizing people on trains left, right and center. So it actually would be fantastic. I mean, you look at how crowded it is in particularly Sydney in my state of New South Wales and what life is like when you spend all these hours commuting in cars and, you know, it's soul destroying. If we had a very fast train line between Melbourne and Brisbane that was inland, you know, we would develop the regions and we would move populations where, where we really need them.
1: That's an interesting topic that we've talked about on the program before. how does the how do the airlines view you know the the prospect of very fast rail?
5: Well, uh, obviously it's um an issue with Sydney's second airport because the premier would like to see a very fast train between Canberra and Sydney. And look on the surface, that sounds good. It, there's all sorts of complications as as there always is when you talk about locations for airports. I think the overwhelming, outcome would be more people in regional Australia and it would benefit those who, who traveled by train, by car and certainly those who travel by plane.
1: I have an obvious interest in it, Susan, because not only am I a pilot, I'm also a train driver, so you see what Are I am
5: Are you? Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. before
1: we get off talking about aviation, um, you, you've got quite a lot of experience in the aviation uh, industry in various different uh, genres there, Susan. Could you tell us a bit about what inspired you to get into flying in the first place?
5: Look... Always loved aeroplanes. Um, I'm not sure where I got it from. It's not really necessarily in my family, although I had two uncles who died in World War Two in uh, uh, fighting uh, in the Middle East. But I didn't know them. But my mum used to say, if it didn't have wings, I'd throw it out of the cot. And so. I just grew up with this passion for airplanes, read about them, looked at them, studied them, wanted to fly them and, and finally I did when I left school and I had a commercial license by the time I was 19 and, and look, I worked three jobs in order to pay for the license in those days, it wasn't a very, it was you know it was a, it was an expensive exercise. So, uh, you know, I worked in, in an office during the day, and then I, I tossed burgers in a takeaway food van outside the Workers Club in Canberra, and then midnight to 2am I used to vacuum my department store, and then fall into bed for a couple of hours sleep. You know, sometimes so exhausted I didn't know which way up I was, and uh, and that's how I paid for um, for my flying lessons and. I think when you work that hard for something and when it means so much to you, it continues to mean a lot to you. So I'm I'm grateful in a way for the fact that my parents said, flying, crazy idea, you're on your own.
3: How did you find it back then doing it? Uh, were there many other females learning to fly at the time?
5: Look, no, there weren't. And I learned to fly at VH Aviation in Canberra. A sad aside to that is there's no flying schools in Canberra anymore, which is just shocking, yep. but that's, we'll probably come to that topic. Um, look, I didn't take to it naturally. After about 18 hours, uh, my flying instructor said to me, Susan, are you sure this is what you want to do? Because we actually don't think you're very suited to it. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, hey, you're a flying school. You want students. You certainly want their money. (laughs) Uh, Think how, you know, how pushed they must have been to say, do we really want this one? But, um. (laughs) I was devastated uh, at that. And I, I said, of course I do. And look, I persisted and persisted. And I don't know, at 27 hours or something, maybe even more, um, I finally went solo and, and, and began, began the long journey. And it's interesting because the thing you love is not always the thing you're good at. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you love it enough, you'll keep doing it until exactly, you're good exactly. enough. Exactly. Yeah.
5: And, and as we saw in the Olympics, you know, the, the, the athletes' victories, they'll say there's, what's 99%? Effort, perspiration and 1% gift and talent. So I took that approach and, and I just worked really, really hard at it. And I I mean, people who, who've who learned to fly and been passionate about flying will know this, is that it occupies about 99% of your head. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, I lived it, I breathed it, I thought it. Um, I had you know, I had the space in my mind for it then, which is by the way something I struggle with now. I still fly but I'm a member of parliament so it's, it's hard to get the headspace.
0: Now you've moved on and
1: got your commercial license. What sort of work did you do once you had the commercial license?
5: Well, I was of course confident that I'd be snapped up by the airlines <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't the case. Weren't we all? By then, <laughs> by then I was working as an air traffic controller first in Melbourne and then Sydney Airport so that certainly helped with the income I needed to get my uh, instrument rating as it was then, a class one instrument rating and various multi-engine endorsements. And uh, no, no airlines wanted to to go near me with a 10-foot pole. Australia was in a bit of recession. We're talking about the mid-1980s and so no one was hiring. I I think I got a job in New Guinea or offered a job and yeah, my family just went into meltdown and I agreed not to take it and I'm absolutely certain if I had, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think my level of skill was quite there. But then I decided, um, you know, hey, one door closes, another one slams in your face. I'll do aerial stock mustering. By the way, before I tried that, I found uh, someone who taught ag flying. And he said, no, I'm not going to teach you because you're a woman and you might have deformed babies. (laughs) (laughs) From all the chemicals. From all the chemicals. Well, hey, he might have been right. So um, I I was in Melbourne at the time and I actually found someone who taught aerial stockmastering. And I became the first woman to get what was then an aerial stockmastering endorsement. I still got the piece of paper that the then Department of Transport issued. And it was valid for six months. And actually, that's when I really learned to fly because, well, low, slow, close to yeah. the ground, and we trained on all the ag strips in the area too. So um, that was for me a, a, a in the practical realities of flying. That was the best the best thing I ever did.
3: It, it's uh, it's a lot different to uh, flying off a big chunk of bitumen in a city, mm-hmm. isn't it?
5: It certainly is And then I thought Well now I'm completely employable By then I'd moved to Sydney And I was doing ATC there And I was living in a flat on Coogee Beach And life was pretty good And um, I put an ad in every single rural newspaper in Australia Saying you know Here I am Commercial license Class one instrument rating Aerial stock mastery endorsement Pick me um, Every rural newspaper And I got three calls <laughs>
0: <laughs>
5: yeah. One from a, uh, a fellow in charters towers who said it's really lonely here uh, can you cook and what sort of plane do you want <laughs> and one from somebody in parks who said I've got a sporty Cessna 310 but there will be after-hours duties <laughs> oh, no. um, such are the joys of being a female and one from a shearing contractor in Sargaminda in far west Queensland and he said, uh, I'm flooded out, I've got sheep banked up to shear in my run from basically Hewenden to Broken Hill, when can you get here? And I said, I'll be there in 48 hours. I went to work, I took off my headset for the last time, I, I said to my bosses in air traffic, I won't be back and they just laughed. I called the second hand dealer who packed up my apartment, and gave me probably, I don't know, hundred bucks for everything in it. I squeezed everything into my 1969 Holden. Uh, I swung by the gun shop in Queensland and I picked up a M1 carbine semi-automatic rifle I, I say this because because people say, oh, you're breaking the law, but of course, in those days, you weren't. Yep. Um, put the gun under the seat of the 1969 hold, and then I headed for the backcountry and um, I went out back flying. It was fabulous. Wow. <laughs> I didn't earn any money, but.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got
3: lots of experience. and uh, I got lots, lots of, of experience. Yeah, yeah. So, well, mm. one quick question how did you become an air traffic controller?
5: Well, at that stage, the office job that I had in Canberra, where I was teaching, well, I was learning to fly, was just a, a personnel job. And so on the Public Service Gazette, they simply came around. I looked and I thought, wow. And then I looked in the newspapers and there was a, there was a national campaign to recruit, I think, some huge number of, of ATCs. It might have been 2,500. So I sort of entered a, a long process because I didn't actually, in the end, pick very many of the people who applied and yeah started in flight data course 25 in the training college in little collins street and actually my acc course got together or got together for our 25th anniversary and we're getting together next year for our 30th anniversary so um yeah it's it's kind of neat a lot of them still have an email address that says air services <laughs> <laughs> And some of them have, yeah, lashed out into the real world and crashed and burned, and yeah, and some of them are muddling along like me.
1: <laughs> well, we know we have a number of uh, air traffic controllers that listen to this program, so maybe some of them will get in touch with you.
5: Yeah, well, um, look, ATC was, was great, um, great to me. It's just that I didn't want to be talking to the planes. I wanted to be in them.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so, so how long were you there before you ditched out and went to Queensland?
5: Um, probably about three years, and yeah, look, towards the end, I was I was getting really antsy and um, I, I mean, everything told me that I should stay and keep flying as a, you, you know, a hobby that let's face it, with the, being an air traffic controller, you could probably do very easily and afford very easily. But I just had this passion to make it my profession and to be professional. And I'm not sure that, that I actually ever was very professional, <laughs> but also, um, you know, we're here for a good time, not for a long time. Or as Amelia Earhart said, life is a
3: adventure or nothing at
1: all. Absolutely. Uh, Susan, uh, people go into federal politics, obviously, or any politics for a number of varied reasons, of course, but as you uh, went into that sphere, uh, did you take with you a determination to represent part of the aviation industry and, and sort of make sure that those issues are front of mind for politicians?
5: Look, I did. And once I got here, I realized that I could talk with some limited authority because I've never been an expert, but some limited authority on on matters to do with, with flying. And, you know, on the first committee that I was appointed to, which was transport, we had the opportunity to talk to CASA and we did an inquiry into regional aviation, which I sort of pushed forth. So very early on in my political career, I saw that I could have some influence on aviation matters, which was, you know, fantastic because, you know, I I don't think that it gets enough prominence on the national policy agenda. And as I said before, it it gets lost in a giant transport and infrastructure portfolio. So, um, look, I represent a rural electorate and between flying and coming here, I did a few things. I was a farmer's, well, a, a partner in, in a, in a farm. Um, I call myself a farmer's wife because I guess that's what I was. I, I went to uni and I studied economics and tax and, and I had a, a career as a tax advisor. So uh, all those things happened before I landed here but you know, throughout it all, although I certainly on, on the land, I couldn't afford to fly um, but I kept that love and, I, and, and as I said, I stopped flying but I never stopped thinking about it. So it's been a real privilege here to do a little bit more with aviation.
1: And along those lines now, there is the uh, the Friends of Aviation Group, the Parliamentary uh, Friends of Aviation Group. Were you involved in setting that up?
5: I was. A couple of guys from the 4As, uh, the which represent Ag Flying, and also the Regional Aviation Association of Australia, Paul Tyrrell and Phil Hurst, actually wandered around the building one time and called in to see me and said, uh, we know there's a lot of Friends Groups. What about a Friends of Aviation Group? And I thought, I'd, I'd sort of had similar thoughts. And well, wow, that's, that's fantastic, we'll, we'll do it. And, and, you know, it takes a bit to put these things in place. You establish the group, you get it signed off by the Speaker and the President of the Senate. And, you know, there's a few formalities. We got through all those and I, I tracked down a, a person on the other side uh, in the Labor Party in the government who was not a pilot but interested in aviation enough to be the co-convenor of the friends. And then we were, you know, we launched, we're off.
1: And that other person, of course, is Ed Husick, the uh, member for yep. Chifley.
5: So it's great to have him. And you know, he, he brings people from, from the government with a passion. I guess I bring people from the coalition with a passion. As time goes on, I believe people will see this group as completely non-political and, um, I, and I think we will do a lot to advance the cause.
1: I think that's very important too because there, there is often quite a, an underlying frustration I think with a lot of people that are involved in aviation here that it, as you mentioned it, it's not one of the big ticket items it seems in federal politics and uh, not a lot of people fly I guess it's a small percentage of the population and uh, they're always looking for a bigger voice.
5: Well they are and we want the group to be you know an interface between industry but not just industry that's there uh, you know, looking for a profit even though we love profit in the Liberal Party and they should love it in the Labor Party because <laughs> they need Australians to make lots of money um, but an interface between those who have um, a love of aviation at their heart and the parliament. So, you know, there's no issue that we would say we wouldn't want to be interested in and involved in. We wouldn't be specifically lobbying on a piece of legislation. I mean we might be interested to hear about it, but I mean there are already committees and established sort of networks that will do that. So if something, you know, lands on the deck in a legislative sense, we wouldn't be the first port of call to talk about it. But you know, the fact that it's not on people's radar screen as much as it should is uh, is, is disappointing and that's what I want to achieve with the friends. I I want people to get a better understanding of what's important. Um, what's important in, in aviation circles and what matters, and, and why for Australia, it's it's um, some it's an it's an issue in an area that could have a lot more prominence than it does.
3: I'm just looking at everything we've just spoken about, and you've seen how flying was back then in Canberra and out in the bush, mm. and back here now. So how have you um, you seen it change in terms of the costs of flying and uh, people like the it was pretty vibrant um, some time back in terms of the number of people in general aviation. That that vibrancy may seem to be there in and the RA sphere, but GA seems to be getting smaller.
5: That's right, and that's the key difference that I noticed. I mean, when I learned to fly in Canberra, uh, there were four flying schools at Canberra Airport, now there's not even one, and airports don't sort of uh, send out, well, they don't give a vibe that they're about flying training. They they give a vibe that they're about uh, real estate and shopping and um, yeah, yeah. industrial development and, you know, the actual activities of flying are a little bit of a nuisance. But, yeah. uh, and I, and look, I think that's sad. But it's not just—we won't blame the airports. It's about just the logistics of being able to run a small GA operation. Uh, the imposition of the same set of rules and regulations that would apply to a much bigger outfit landing on a, a, a one-man band in regional Australia. I mean, you just can't—you just can't run it. And you know, and I—I don't believe that CASA promotes aviation in terms of general aviation nearly as much as it should. I know that it's got a function to do that, but it sees itself primarily as a regulator and and I understand that and and I know it's easy to beat up on CASA, so uh, so I will. (laughs) Um, But when I hear from small general aviation charter and training companies about how difficult CASA makes it for them. For reasons that make no sense and don't relate to safety, but, you know, just might be putting a different aircraft on your AOC, one that perhaps you've already had before, one that's history is well known, you know, why does it cost sort of $1,500 and take six weeks? That sort of thing. Yep. Um, you, you know, that, oh, look, I would love to be the Minister for Aviation and able to have some influence on that. And I mean, we will have some forums with the Friends of Aviation that involve Cathar. I hope, because they've got in many of these cases a case to answer.
3: There is some change happening in Casa, but there's there's a long way to go from a from a GA perspective. But as they uh, many of them turn around and say that. They've got limited resources and funds and people yeah, and so on, yeah. and uh, mm. they've got to make sure the airlines are right. So there's there's lots to be said on all sides of it, but I, I mm. think we need to do a heck of a lot to, to boost GA and RA because otherwise there's not going to be any pilots to fly the A380s and so on.
5: That's right, and I made a speech to Parliament not that long ago where I talked about the numbers of pilots, air traffic controllers, and most particularly instructors that are needed worldwide for you know the, 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 the global aviation task, which is now thankfully huge wide body jets increasing numbers of people flying and you know we we could be front and center of this in Australia yes we do do some training of international student pilots but we could be doing much more uh, we could really we could really have a role in providing pilots for the world for the future and it wouldn't it be fantastic if we did?
1: You talk about the legislative uh, barriers that sometimes come along or particularly regulation problems when it comes to CASA or maybe not problems but hurdles but one of the common themes that we always come across here Susan is, is the cost of flying. It's become really prohibitively expensive for, for many many people and talking to a lot of young people that's generally a topic that's brought up and how can they afford it? What can we do to make it more attractive? How can we make it less expensive or can we make it less expensive?
5: Well I know the carbon tax is going to make it a bit more expenses so I'll, I'll just cover off on the carbon tax it's important to mention that because it is making flying more expensive but look it's not it's not the totality of it of course it's a challenge I I attended the graduation of pilots from Rex recently and talking to a lot of them I mean they were delighted to have the opportunity to enter the Rex cadet program mind you they've got to you know it's not it's not a gift they it's <laughs> like a hex system run by Rex which is fine but just the stories of how they actually couldn't afford it were really um, disappointing because even though I did, as I said, work three jobs, I still could afford it. And I didn't have, you know, I, I saved and I managed to make it happen. And I'm not sure that that could be replicated today. So it would, um, you know, I'm very sympathetic to the arguments of a vet fee help, which essentially is like a hex system for non-university. So that if you, uh, I mean, it couldn't necessarily apply to everybody, but perhaps to some students that they could get, what would amount to a government loan which they would then pay back, which is actually what Rex and the others are doing.
1: There's other issues such as um, landing fees which can be excessive, particularly here in Melbourne, uh, You know, perhaps navigation charges, all this sort of stuff. I mean, is that something yes. that your group would, would have a bit of scope to look at?
5: Well, yes, and you see from that we could you know, governments could could come up with a package which allowed access to flying training without all those fees, without those landing fees and without some of the on costs that are essentially taxes, which would make it, you know, make it workable. The the fact is people are not learning to fly and the fact is that we need more people to and governments can lead the way. I mean, they can't lead the way in everything, but they could lead the way in this.
3: Speaking of governments leading the way, um, something that's just come through in the US, uh, particularly after a, a gentleman by the name of Senator Inhofe had his own little Um, wrangle with the FAA. And he's brought in a pilot's bill of rights that talks about, uh, yeah, basically he discovered the hard way that um, you don't get to see what you're being accused of. You don't get all the evidence in front of you. It's very much a, a presumed guilty and you have to prove you're innocent, all that kind of stuff. So he lobbied hard for a pilot's bill of rights, pulled a whole lot of favors and got it swept through both houses mm. and the and the president's wow. sign off was just recent. Is that something that could possibly be of benefit over here?
5: It sounds um it sounds quite exciting. I'm going to look it up. I had no idea about that. Um it also sounds quite American. <laughs> oh,
0: very. <laughs>
5: but uh but I think it underscores the point and certainly resonates with some people here, I imagine where you don't really know why the regulator has a problem with you only that they do. Yeah. Uh and the result is not good for you, but um I think, I think cost is the main thing we have to attack for just getting people into the system, for getting students into the system. We've got to find some way. And obviously, fee help would go a long way to doing that. But then the other side of it is the supply, the supply of training and the flying training organisations that are just disappearing in front of my eyes across regional Australia. And, you know, that's just awful just to see the old dusty sheds where you could imagine 15 years ago there would have been gatherings on the weekend, there would have been fly-ins, and none of that's happening.
3: Yeah, we're seeing a bit of that happening um, here close to Melbourne where they've been able to set up a bit of community like Kyneton is uh, managing to keep things going. A few of the smaller airstrips, but there's nowhere like it was was, nowhere like it was and, and the further out that you go from a, a population center the more of a, of a ghost town that it becomes yeah. It's like tomorrow's doing it right in terms of everything they're doing to foster aviation there, and um, the council is right on the importance of their airport, but some other councils don't get it. You see some places where the, the council's actively trying to get rid of the, the airport and not foster the community mm. and make things happen. And it's it's yes. a very complex landscape.
5: It is, and um, I think that, that people like yourself who promote aviation in a very real way and, and talk about it, are, it's great. It's great that you're there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Susan, uh, mm. you talk about it being very American when it comes to the Bill of Rights, but... um, and of course I actually did most of my pilot training in the United States and I have an American licence. One thing I notice about the Americans is that they are very good at lobbying uh, various uh, levels of government. Um, Given that we have the Parliamentary Friends of Aviation group, I mean, does that provide an opportunity for people from the various alphabet groups here, such as AOPA Australia or RAOS, to approach your group and and get those issues up? Is that probably the best vehicle for them to do that?
5: Well, it's one vehicle and we'd love them to do it. And we're keen to host events in Parliament House. I know that's often difficult and challenging, but uh, we don't have to just have events here. We can put members of our group in touch with the issues that are faced by particular regions. So we can say, uh, look, this is your local MP or you know, these are your local senators with an interest and why don't you approach them and and offer advice. And I mean, I'd I'd love to be involved in doing that because the last thing I want is for people to see their national parliament as something they can't approach. And if people don't lobby us, directly, then we don't always hear of what the problems are. Absolutely.
1: Well, uh, what we'll do, Susan, is we'll put some links to your website uh, and contact details, if you don't mind, on our website for the show notes for this episode. Love that. Well, fantastic. We really appreciate you spending some time with us, Susan. Susan Lay is the federal member for Farrah in the lower house in the federal parliament, and uh, you can find her at uh, susanlay.com. And, uh, Susan, you're also on Twitter as Susan Lay. I
5: am, yes. My Twitter picture has got me with a headset on, so.
3: (laughs) Looks like you're in a 206 per chance.
5: Uh, No, that would be the, uh, the 182RG that I fly. I hire this one when I can, but sometimes the owner's using it, so I can't.
3: (laughs) Susan, we want
1: to congratulate you for uh, forming this group, and uh, I think this is a very, very positive thing that you're doing in the Federal Parliament. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you again uh, very soon, we hope.
5: I hope so. It's been lovely to talk to Plane Crazy.
6: Take off for the adventure of
7: a lifetime with Air Services and the Turidin Flying School, where you can live out your
6: passion and learn to fly. Book a personalised charter flight to Lake Eyre, Flinders and King Island or anywhere in Australia. Or enjoy an adventure flight for yourself
7: or as a gift with scenic and aerobatic flights in the classic Tiger Moth on weekends. Take flight with Ausair Services at the Turidin Flying School. Go to ausairservices.com.au Hi, this is Max Flight. This is
4: Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com. If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you Plane Crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America.
2: Want to advertise your business on the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plane Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music, and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plain Crazy down under website.
7: Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network.
0: Thevoicesinyourhead.com
1: September 12th to 16th, 2012. Well, it's only a couple of weeks away. Crikey, Mark Pracy, is it that close to the Reno Air Races already? Doesn't take long to come around, guys. No, That's t- for sure. I'll tell you what, mate, and uh, how's preparations going for Pracy Racing this year?
7: Yeah, look, we're, we're pretty well on track for, to getting up and going. I mean, we, we went over there in uh, June to uh, evaluate the track. And, and take the run, air, aircraft for a run, which was the main thing, and uh, to see what was actually going on over there. I mean, living in Australia, we're in a bit of a vacuum, I guess, but that's what we went over there for to, to investigate. Before
1: we, uh, we go on and talk about specifics, the elephant in the room, I guess, is the Jimmy Leeward uh, crash from last year. How is the general mood over there? Are people sort of looking forward now and, and trying to move on from that?
7: Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, typical American style, everything just moves on and uh, punches forward. And uh, you would think from Australian standpoint, yeah, it'd be a major fact. But I mean, everyone seems to be just moving forward and keeping the positives on the whole situation.
1: That's great. And what sort of effect has it had? For example, I imagine uh, it might have impacted on your insurance rates, if nothing else.
7: Well, the insurance for the race is a a major thing. I mean, it's gone from 300 grand for the whole race to $2 million, which um, the organisation like RARA to to raise $2 million is a a huge investment for them to try and uh, get over the top of. And and they're still not over it too. I mean, it comes up to the 1st of September where it indicates where they have to make the first payment For the race, and we're not at the first of September yet. And until such time we get there, we don't really know, to be honest.
3: So they may not. uh, That may come to the point of pay up, and they may not have the funds, is what is what you're saying.
7: Well, well, that that could be the case. I mean, all indications uh, that that they will get there because the state of Nevada um, may pick up the tab one way or another. But yeah, all things positive. RRA has been very positive, and they've overcome huge hurdles to get where they are and you don't have to assume that they're going to make it because they wouldn't have got this far in the first place.
1: Well it's such an iconic event isn't it I mean it would be a shame to see it wind up and if my, my sense is that Americans being as resilient as I often find them to be I'm, I'm sure they'll find a way around somebody will come up with that money and I noticed too Mark on their website that they've got a donate button there for people if they want to make donations towards the race.
7: Yeah absolutely and, and they've got a lot of race fans and you know, I've donated myself, I mean, and, and I'm sure thousands of others have to, to make the race happen. So the only way for it to happen is to, for everyone to, to participate. And I'm sure that's going to happen. And the way the Americans are, I mean, they are a can do nation. And uh, I have no doubt that they will get there. Excellent.
1: Now, uh, tell us about the aircraft. I mean, uh, how much work has the aircraft done since last year or has it done any at all?
7: Well, you know, we took it for a run in June to, to, to get it around the track and it went really well and the tracks uh, changed a little. But to what work we've done on it, we haven't squeezed it in any way. You know, we, we uh, want to keep it the way it was, I, I guess, um, to, to get through this year. That's the main thing, to get through this yeah. year. We don't want to be uh, doing anything controversial as, as the races are very, um, you know, they're, they're thin at the moment. So we need to, to keep it safe and keep everything as it was, to be honest.
1: And we should just remind any people that are new to the show, if you could just tell us a bit about the aircraft, it's an L39, highly modified or at least partially modified. Yeah,
7: it's 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 um, partially modified. You know, it's got uh, wingtips and it's got weight reduction and a few different aerodynamic things done it, engine modifications. But we want to try and keep it uh, not too radical. You know, it's, we've just gone through a big uh, incident and we want to try and keep it competitive and safe. I mean, uh, and we want the races to continue. So we don't want to make any major changes to what it was last year. Uh, we want to get through this year. That's the main thing. And, we, and it's it's quite extraordinary that we're going to be racing in 2012. So um, <laughs> that's that's the main thing.
3: Well, I mean, you were doing pretty well last year as well. You were coming up in the heats, the, the numbers were getting better and you were getting more in the groove as it was progressing along. So um, it's not like you were straggling the whole time. So the aircraft was obviously pretty good last year as well.
7: No, exactly. I mean, compared Considering I was a rookie last year and um, we we're around the middle of the pack, which is not too bad when you're up yeah. against, you know, America's best, I guess, and you, you come around seventh out of 16, um, that's nothing to be sneezed at, and we've got to try and maintain that. Uh, or if not better it. So I I guess flying ability will come into it as well as uh, power and aerodynamics of what you got. One of the things
3: you mentioned in there uh, just briefly was uh, you've mentioned a couple of times track changes. Are you able to say what's changed since last year on the track?
7: We were, I guess, one of the fast movers on the track to evaluate it because out out of um, last year on, on PRS, only one unlimited went on the track which was dreadnought I believe, and the jet class. so the track has moved you know from pylon six and five it's been squeezed up a little to tighten up the track. the deadline running around uh, the valley of speed has been squeezed a little so which they don't call deadlines anymore they call them show lines so that it, it stops the aircraft drifting out wide and and uh, yeah, when you drift out wide, that means you, you're minimising your G to keep the, the aircraft tracking, you know, running and fast. So that means you you don't get that sort of drift going on. You've got to maintain a little G. Yep. G is speed and uh, and energy. So it's going to tighten things up that way. Um, it's shorten the track a little bit. And uh, we've got to maintain you know our awareness of our limitations on show lines. and and that's going to be a major factor in this year's race. So you'll be pulling a bit more G the whole time or
3: will it just be the same G, but fewer brakes.
7: Yeah, I wouldn't say. we're going to pay we're not going to pull more G. We're just going to have to be aware of the show lines okay. where before we're allowed to let them run and let yep. the aircraft run and so you might go from four g down to two g. Well, I guess, you know, you, you, you may have to keep that G on a little bit more to get around the track, you know, to, yep. to, to not let it run. Because well, when you release G, you, you're going to increase speed. So... This way is going to keep the speed down a little bit, I guess. Okay. And, and, the, and the track speed has been reduced to 500 miles an hour on average. Because it's tightened up and because you've got to keep the G on and things like that. Yeah. And, and then yeah. overall, they've just they've, they've slowed the track down a little and, and, and they've put a ceiling on speed as well.
3: So how's that impacting on your training? Are you doing any different training to last time for yourself to get yourself ready for the G loading and the, the sustained loading?
7: the sustained loading for our, you know, for where we are, it's not going to really change that much. For the fast movers, it's going to be a little bit different. They were getting around about 538 miles an hour or something like that. Well, now they're going to have to come around at under 500 miles an hour. So the, what they're going to have to do, we were under 500 miles an hour. On average, we would have probably clipped 500 miles an hour down the straight. But on average, we were under that. So for those guys, they're going to have to slow down one way or another. Now, how they're going to do that, we don't really know. So that's that's something that uh, is going to have to come up. I guess we we'll have to discuss for those guys.
1: Now, Mark, you'll be racing in the jet class, of course. Um, How's the field looking this year? I know last year we had uh, quite a few. um, We had you and at least one other Aussie team, and I think a Kiwi team, but how's it looking this year?
7: Yeah, we've got ourself and Lockie Onslow. Lockie's from Armadale, so we're the two Aussies there. Johnny Crookshaw, he's another Aussie that's running out of the Gold Coast. He's, He's not going to race this year. He's got other ventures going on, and he's got other business deals that's keeping him very, very busy, and he's got some stuff going on in New Zealand in Wanaka. So this year he's unable to race, but it's myself and Lockie. And, uh, you know, Lockie's all keen to go. And between myself and Lockie, we're very competitive. Our aircraft, Lockie's running in the uh, Iskra, and I've got the All-39. So we're very closely um, competitive, I guess, with speeds and, and characteristics. So I guess it's between us two that, to keep the fight going on. Keep the flag waving and uh, take it to the
3: Yanks. And uh, if if you're leading the Yanks, well, then it's down between the two of you, right?
7: Yeah, exactly. If we can get in front of them and then get in front of each other, that'd be really good.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking down the list here on the uh, on the website here, and it, it appears that though uh, you two guys are the only international uh, entries in the jet class for this year.
7: Yeah, in the jet class, myself and Lockie, we're the only two, uh, and we're we're very close. I mean, we're good friends and. And we try and help each other. We practice with each other on the track to try and better ourselves. You know, we get around. Last year, we we both went to PRS, and we we didn't we didn't participate in the qualifications with the new guys. We were pretty much on our own, and we we're just trying to better ourselves and get good starts and. And positioning, and and to help ourselves. But once race time comes, you know, all that's forgotten. And it's, uh you know, if I could put some water in his tank, I would, if he wasn't watching. And he the same <laughs> to me, I guess. Awesome. <laughs> well,
1: just don't let him listen to this podcast,
7: mate. <laughs> no, exactly.
3: <laughs> all on for young and old.
7: <laughs> yes, yeah. we help each other when when we're practicing and stuff, but. Other than that, you yeah, know, we're competitive and we like to go fast and get in the front.
1: Just looking at the field there, who would you say is probably the one to beat this year?
7: Oh, look, Mangold, I guess he's up the top. He's not flying his own aircraft, which is Euroburner. He's flying a uh, another L-29, which is uh, Pratt has a Pratt & Whitney engine in it. Yeah. and uh, he's obviously going to be one of the top contenders. You've got my, uh, uh, as well, you've got Phil Fogg running around the L39. It's capable of 500 miles an hour pretty easily. Uh, you got Rick Vandam in an L39. He's capable of 500 miles an hour. So those guys, you know, they're up the top, and uh, there, there's a couple of other guys that are around too, but it all depends on... The day, you know, the temperature, if their aircraft's going to start, there's lots of, uh, and what their crew can do, you know, if their crew can keep the aircraft running, that's good. If their crew can't, well, that's when you step in and you, you can slide up the ladder pretty easily. Doesn't one
3: of the L-39s have like a really boosted engine? They put an L-29 engine in it or vice versa?
7: Yeah, no, that's been banned as well. That's the, you're talking about Pipsqueak, that's an L-39 with an L-59 engine in it. That aircraft's been banned as well as the uh, all the other L-29s with the Viper engine, which is one of Mangol's as one of those engines. And, uh, look, I think that comes down to uh, an incident that happened at PRS in 2011, and they haven't quite got over that incident. And... After that incident, and then the Jimmy Leeward incident, I guess they just want to keep away from it, yeah. let things settle down, and uh, and have some safe racing, I guess, for a while before they'll probably readdress address that. I, I guess. Are
3: you, are you able to say what the incident was in PRS last year? Oh, or?
7: It's so uh had the Pennies the old twenty nine where they had a a uh, one of the tailpipes, I, I guess, failed on the old twenty nine and uh, ducted hot air into the tail and had, had a bit of an incident and that was with an l-29 with the viper engine so yeah. they basically banned the viper engines until they'll they'll pretty much more proven and uh and they'll get around to that and they'll get them flying no doubt and they're, they're pretty they're safe but i guess with, with after the leewood incident um, they just probably want things to settle down and they'll reevaluate that uh, at a later date and they'll, they'll get flying no doubt because yeah. they're a safe aircraft but I guess they just don't need the uh, the extra work. I guess <laughs> they don't need distress at the moment. Let's just get yeah, back into it and make much, it happen. <laughs> pretty. They probably just want to get back to making the races happen and then, and then I'll reevaluate and and get things happening. But yeah, okay. uh, and, and that's that's where all that all bases bases on, I guess.
3: So we've we've got the track changes, the speed. You know, a couple of the big beefier engines are out. What other changes have they in, implemented post Jimmy Leewood and uh, with to bring everything back and make sure it's a little tighter
7: yeah look the FAA is going to step in a little bit harder and uh, instead of having the class uh, appoint a person to do inspections of your aircraft I think the FAA is going to step in and have a look at your aircraft as well so you know everything's going to be way above board before your race I mean uh, we all have to be there before the 9th of uh, September with the aircraft ready to be inspected and uh, you know when the FAA is looking they're the they're going to be having a good look, I guess, especially <laughs> this year, and everything has to be certified and ready to roll. So uh, it's going to be hard to, um, for anyone to have anything highly modified to get through the gate, I, I suspect. Okay.
3: Well, it's all sounding pretty exciting and pretty good.
7: Yeah, that, that's right. That's for us in the jet class. I mean, I, I guess we'll just leave the aircraft as it was last year okay. instead of uh, you know doing any more modifications because any more modifications could – Probably rule you out of the race, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, don't walk that line. Yeah, that's right. That's that's where we are at the moment. So we, we just want a good, clean race for this year and, and no incidents, you know.
1: Now, uh, Mark, as this show goes to air, it's uh, early September and you said you've got to be there by the 9th. Are you heading off a little early for that?
7: Yeah, I'll, I'll be there on the 7th. We've got a few guys that are going there earlier to get the aircraft ready and and stuff like that. But I me personally, I'll be going there on the 7th, you know, to uh, just be there, really. I mean, we don't fly until around about the, the, the 10th, I guess. So, uh you know have the aircraft ready and uh, I'll be there ready to roll No sure. worries
1: and uh, any other changes to the uh, to the support team this year or same as last year
7: Pretty much same as last year you know all same guys everyone's keen to go and uh, they're all got their stuff uh, reserved and uh you know the, the biggest thing was is whether we were going or not you know that was yeah. a major thing you know and uh, you know to be honest, 1st of September is still not here, yeah. and uh, we're all ready to go and we're all keen to go, but uh, we'll have to still wait for the 1st of September to, for the for the green light to go. But as a good guesser and relying on the Americans, you know, you, you're going to say it's going to have to happen. But uh, that, that's a bit of uh, wishful thinking as well. But. I reckon it will happen. Now, Mark, I've got to
1: ask you this just as we wrap up here. Uh, speaking of flying, and, of course, you know, we know you have the uh, L39 jet rides down here, but uh, I can't let you go without talking about uh, some other piece of equipment you've just picked up that flies. How's that new motorbike going?
7: <laughs> well, I mean, I picked it up today, actually. Really? As a matter of fact, yeah. So uh, it's probably got about six or seven Ks on the new Harley. <laughs> <laughs> Well it's a heck of a
1: birthday present you shouted yourself
7: mate. Not too bad is it? I mean, yeah, sometimes you have to step outside the box. <laughs> and uh, yeah, picked it up today and it was a good bit of fun. It was probably not a good time to get it, you know, because Reno's coming up so quick, so I probably won't get much time to enjoy it. But I'm sure that after Reno, I'll come back and give it a good flogging, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly th- I certainly hope you're going to uh, bring it down here to Melbourne at some point.
7: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Another another true uh, toy we got, to is the glass here. She's up yeah. in London, like... I took it to uh, Echuca last weekend because we had flights on Saturday in uh, Hunter Valley, and we we done about five or six or seven flights on, on Saturday. Hunter had to jump in the, the glass air and fly to Melbourne to oh. uh, then fly in the, the L39 that we got in uh, Echuca. Or th- oh, the pain. <laughs> on Sunday, you know, so that was more exciting than the Harley, I think, you know, jumping in the L39 in the glass air and then off to uh, Echuca for Sunday flights. That turned out really well, and then back home for Sunday afternoon. So that was a bit of excitement. Jeez, I
1: live a boring life by comparison.
7: I know, yeah. <laughs> Who's, paying for the fuel? Who's paying for the fuel, I'd like to know. Are you going to pick that up? <laughs> yeah,
1: you can keep that one all to
7: yourself, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: It makes a bit of a change from Jetstar down from Newcastle and then a crazy RX-7 ride up from Melbourne.
7: Well, <laughs> yeah, yes, it does actually, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. uh that's exactly right. It was always that's the way it was. It was uh yeah. Newcastle, um Melbourne, then higher car, and then one time I had to go with Grant, which was you know, it's probably like an L thirty nine ride up the highway. <laughs> yes. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Don't worry,
3: you got your revenge.
7: Yeah, I've I've done five hundred miles an hour on fifty feet, but I've never done it at uh, like sitting in the passenger side on the road. (laughs) Yeah,
3: (laughs) yeah, yeah, you got your revenge, mate. You put me through all those aileron rolls in the Cuban eight, so (laughs) that was was good.
7: I had to retaliate with something (laughs) what a way to go
1: (laughs) well Mark we wish you all the best over there at uh, Reno this year of course as we did last year we'll be following and uh, keeping our audience here up to date with uh, all the travels there and of course uh, you know we'll we'll be expecting you to come home with at least one trophy and maybe two
7: yeah that'll be good guys and I mean uh, thanks very much for your support and uh, uh, you can watch us on Pracy Racing the guys will be uh, updating the website to keep people interested and to see what else is going on and all the spec times and and all the other competitors and ourselves as well, I guess. Awesome.
1: No problem. And also you can find that uh, if you want to look at the race in general, folks, that's at airrace.org.
7: As Mark mentioned, you can
1: find him at pracyracing.com. And if you'd like to have a ride in an L39 yourself, go and check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. So I can still do that tagline, Mark.
7: That'll get you there, won't it? No problem. (laughs) Good luck, mate, and we'll talk to you when you get back. Thanks, guys.
1: Joining us on the line from Brisbane the line is the Vice Britain. President of the Sport Aviation Association of Australia, David Brown. How are you, David?
6: Yeah, very well. And yourself?
1: Uh, very well. Thanks for joining us. Now, uh, we're going to have a chat here about OzFly. It's uh, only a few weeks away as we record this, and uh, I guess you're uh, getting all excited and uh, getting ready to kick it off.
6: Exciting would be uh, an understatement. I think uh, the buzz around the country from everybody we're speaking to um, suggests that the uh, interest and the uh, likely turn up is um, going to exceed our expectations. So I hope to have all the feedback we're getting is correct.
1: Now the SAAA is running AusFly in conjunction with AOPA and uh, Australian Warbirds. Um, can you tell us a bit about the concept of it and how it all came about?
6: Sure can. The SAAA for many years has had a national convention and at the last one, um, the quite a bit of discussion with a few of the folk from CASA, Rob Glenn, Peter John and Peter John's uh, role in CASA is to um, invigorate general aviation in Australia and one of the suggestions was we need to have something a little more GA focused going on in the country, a bit like Oshkosh in the, in the USA. So a few of us took it upon ourselves to get uh, the board folk at AOPA uh, and Australian Warbirds and. They've got a common CEO in Steve Crocker so that made that a little easier and we put our heads together to plan a uniting um, or a united front as it were for people in general aviation. The RAOs have done an excellent job over the years with their annual fly, but the majority of private and business uh, people that have... A GA aeroplane for whatever purpose, whether it be sport, aerobatic, uh, business or uh, whatever. There was nothing much on the uh, national calendar that catered for them, for education, for seeing what's new in the marketplace, a venue for CASA safety uh, type education. So it was greeted with uh, much joy from both AOPA and Australian Warbirds, so uh, we pushed on and SAAA have got a long history of running events, uh, had some successful events in uh, Perth at Langley Park, and uh, we've been doing them in places like Cowra and Mangalore for many years, long before I was involved. So having our office now based in Narramine gave us the perfect venue. There's good weather there in September and it's reasonably centrally located, so uh, what started off as a bit of an idea 12 months ago, has uh, bloomed into what we hope to be the beginnings of a a mini Oshkosh in Australia.
1: Well, it's it's certainly a heady goal. And I mean, you you talk about uh, events like Oshkosh and Sun and Fun over in the States, and I mean, the Americans do that so well. I think the thing that really impresses me about those events is that they're more than an air show, they're they're more a celebration of aviation. And uh, I see the motto here for AusFly is Australia's private and sport aviators together under the one sky. So it's, it's certainly a very worthy goal and something that we can work towards, I think, over the next few years to achieve that.
6: Correct. Yeah, the, the single biggest thing I see when I've been to Oshkosh is besides lots of exhibitors and a really good flying routine, uh, program, sorry, the number of people that go there just to catch up with their mates from all over the country, or in their terms, buddies from all <laughs> over the country. And it's really a, uh, a, a very much a social interaction of people that are like-minded and share a common uh, interest in aviation.
1: Yeah, it's, it certainly yeah. is, and uh, it's certainly something that we can work towards. You know, it's something that we really need here. I've been banging on about this for years doing this podcast. Is that we really need to, to do this sort of thing to really create a, a really united uh, approach to to all the different sectors of aviation in Australia. And uh, as you mentioned, and we've done a couple of net flies now, and that's a fantastic event. If we can sort of do a, a larger version of that, then I think we're really uh, we're really on the right track there. Yeah,
6: I would agree. And um, all the way through the planning of this, um, and, and it's very important not. To- to detract from what the RAOs do at their Easter event. Um, RAOs themselves are actually exhibiting, even the folk from the Avalon Air Show have a stand at Ozfly because they understand that promoting their activities at this event is part of a, uh, a bigger community of, uh, of different segments of the aviation industry. So at the lighter end of town, RAOs. And their event at the heavier end of town, which is predominantly business and uh, military aviation, they're also involved. So this has become a little bit of a, uh, a common ground for uh, for even the other organisations to come and actually participate in this event as well.
1: Now, it's running, uh, as you say, at Narrowmine up there in New South Wales between the 13th and the 16th of September. Let's have a bit of a talk about the uh, the program that's uh, coming up in basic terms. We've got seminars, air displays, some entertainment at night time, all that sort of stuff.
6: We have indeed. The... The program starts earlier in the week with some SAAA-focused uh, activities, and maintenance procedure courses for people who are uh, maintaining their own um, experimental home-built aircraft. As we get further on into the weekend, the Friday, Saturday, there's various workshops, so hands-on workshops where there'll be demonstrations of doing metal work and composite work we have the honor and privilege of Mr. Andrew Denyer from Adelaide coming along to show what goes on with an ADN-4. Now, even for people with a certified airplane, it's very important they know what goes on at ADN-4 and also some things that they might be wanting their laymies to perform, boroscoping for example, to help enhance the whole process. So when you're Paying money out for uh, an engine inspection to be done at your annual, you want to get the most out of it. So we've got a really good guy in Andrew Denyer coming along to uh, demonstrate an 80-inch four from start to finish, and I'm sure that's uh, going to be of interest to people not just in the experimental field but also in the certified field. In addition to that, we've got Oz Runways conducting uh, lectures and particularly their masterclass, um, which will be a a more in-depth version of their introductory uh, seminars that they conducted various fly-ins around the country. We'll have engine management and diagnostics conducted by again Andrew Denyer and myself. We've got some lectures from people like GT propellers, uh, engineers from Italy come all the way to Australia purely for this event. So uh, that should be a very interesting thing and particularly amongst the Warburg community where uh, some GT propellers are used. As for entertainment, we've booked in some extremely talented uh, young folk and uh, without giving too much away, when you see Ellen and Travis perform and I'm sure some of you have seen some of the, uh, the, the YouTube, one of their warm-up clips of a few weeks ago on the uh, on the website, I think you'll agree these guys have got a bit of talent so that should be a great night. To add to that talent, uh, Peter Van Herc is going to be running on the Friday evening a talent quest. We've joked about it and called it Oz Factor <laughs> and uh, I actually dread the thought of that but anyway, we've got a few good prizes. Um, one of our major sponsors, in fact our uh, our premium sponsor being Aero Refuelers, um, have donated some uh, prizes including 100 uh, litre uh, Avgas vouchers and we're going to put two of those up for grabs on the Friday evening. So anybody with a bit of talent or even just potential for talent could... Uh, Possibly win themselves a couple of hundred dollars worth of uh, of avgas just for um, trying to entertain us.
1: Oh, fantastic! I might volunteer Grant to uh, participate in that, David.
6: I would encourage him to do so if he if he feels he has some talent and the need for avgas.
1: Yeah, well, uh, we'll just get better, some, him, better him than me. We'll get some beers That's into him. He'll do anything. <laughs> Let's have Very a talk. Good. Let's talk about the air displays. We've got Paul Bennett uh, putting on some displays there, and also Tony Blair.
6: Tony Blair and his Rebel three hundred. Um, we should have a an arrangement of. Uh, warbirds, um, things like uh, Grumman Avenger, uh, Mustang, Wirraways, a few other uh, warbirds that um, you know, subject to availability on the day um, to do flying displays. Um, we should also have the right flyer available. Um, it's now got a new CFA and weather permitting and Keith Engelsman, who's a uh, highly regarded test pilot, um, the right flyer might get to leave the earth momentarily again. For something different, we've also got model aircraft, and we're talking about serious model aircraft, uh, some rather large RC jets and the like to um, provide something a bit different in the air displays. Now, we've got air displays on for uh, Friday afternoon for two hours between 3.30 and 5.30, and then again from, I think it's 11 to 1 on Saturday, and then 3.30 again till 5.30 on Saturday. So there'll be three two-hour air display, so there uh, should be plenty of airborne entertainments for anybody that's interested. And for those that are into ballooning, Friday night there'll be a balloon glow as the backdrop to our evening entertainment and uh, barbecue on the lawn outside the Aero Club.
0: Oh, well, Grant
1: will definitely be Grant into like that, David, and uh, there's also going to be a balloon trek uh, into AusFly, is that right?
6: Indeed, Steve, um, Balloobla Ballooning, uh, they're doing a balloon trek from uh, Friday the 7th and uh, arriving into Narramine on the Thursday. This is a bunch of folk with uh, experimental balloons that they uh, have built themselves and uh, conducting a trek across uh, southern New South Wales through towns like Wagga, Wagga, Tamora, uh, the Whedon Mountains, Canowindra, uh, Molong and uh, finally into Dubbo over to uh, Narrowmine and they're going to provide the backdrop for the um, the uh, Friday night uh, evening entertainment with a, uh, with a massive balloon glow. So um, certainly something not to be missed.
1: One of the things that all these sorts of events rely on heavily is corporate sponsorship and uh, you've been very fortunate there at AusFly to attract a number of very generous uh, supporters there. Would you like to run through those, David?
6: Absolutely. In fact, um, I'm going goosebumpy just thinking about this. The support we've had has been tremendous and I can't uh, thank aero refuelers from Albury anywhere near enough. Massive uh, support and sponsorship from them. Uh, QBE Insurance has been a long-term sponsor of SAAA activities. And again, they join us as uh, one of our major sponsors. Some of the other significant uh, contributors and first uh, off the list would be Cirrus Aircraft. They jumped in pretty early on and uh, I'm very pleased to have them join us. Complete Avionics from the Gold Coast along with Garmin. The Civil Aviation Safety Authority, another very active participant and generous uh, contributor. Uh, companies like Bose, the Australian International Air Show from Avalon and I'd have to also congratulate Oz Runways, yourselves at Plane Crazy Down Under and Aviation Trader for providing an absolutely fantastic uh, marketing platform and uh, can't thank these folk enough. I'm sure most of the people who come to an event like this understand it costs a, a fair deal of money to put things on. That uh, if it wasn't for these great companies, we certainly uh, would not be having anything uh, like the kind of event we're going to have. I'd suggest jump on the website, have a look at the exhibitor list as well. Some of those companies are represented, but there's a whole host of others and uh, too many to mention in this interview. It's
1: gonna be a a really wonderful weekend and we're very proud to be there. We're gonna be providing uh, AusFly Radio. We're gonna have a go at that. We'll be providing all of the uh, PA systems there and uh, we're gonna do a few uh, interesting activities there and uh, do some wonderful interviews, we hope, and uh, in the intervening time, we'll be playing uh, some of our better interviews and some of our other pre-recorded content from the last uh, few years hopefully provide a bit of entertainment. So a bit of a technical challenge for us, but we're certainly looking forward to it.
6: Yeah, I think it'll go very well and uh, yeah, again, thank you very much for all the efforts that uh, you and Grant are putting in to, uh, to make this all possible. Without it I'm sure we'd be struggling.
1: We're really enthusiastic about getting up there and helping to make sure that this is a fantastic event and one that has a real future to it and, and goes on for many years to come because uh, as we mentioned at the top there, it, it's all about uh, celebrating aviation here and, and trying to replicate what they do over there so well in the States and uh, it's just a thrill for us to be involved for that.
6: absolutely all we need now is for everybody else to get involved and uh, come along and make it a, you know an event that everybody's going to want to come back to next year and I think that's the secret uh, if you get a lot of people there they have a good time they learn something they'll want to come back next year and Year after year, then the uh, critical mass can be uh, maintained, and uh, you'll end up then with, uh, you know, five to ten years down the track, something that um, we all should be very proud of. Folks,
1: if you'd like to find out more about this wonderful event coming up at Narrowmine, uh, 13th to the 16th of September, jump on the web and go to Ozfly. Ausfly, that's a u s f l y dot com dot au, and you can find out all sorts of information there. And of course, also don't forget to get over to uh, check out what the S do there. That's S dot com. And also, of course, thanks to. Uh, Oprah uh, australia uh, and uh, australian warbirds david uh, we're really uh, looking forward uh, to being there in a couple of weeks and we'll uh, we'll see you there and we'll grab you and have a bit of an extended chat about how things are going
6: absolutely i'm looking forward to it steve and i look forward to seeing as many uh, of your listeners as possible It'd be a great weekend cheers
1: And thank you, David Brown. And I tell you what, guys, uh, those guys have put a lot, a lot of work into this event. It's been in the making now for nearly 12 months. And uh, i tell you what, it looked a little bit small when they started, but I think this is going to be a fantastic event, AusFlo. We're really looking forward to getting up there.
3: Oh, definitely, mate. And uh, as we get down to the last few weeks before the show starts, there's definitely a, a major crunch time hitting. And uh, you can totally hear that every time we pick up the phone and have a quick chat with David or Mark Rowe. Uh, yep, yep, yep. Get through, get through. How's it going? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, right. Bye. Cl- boom, they're off. <laughs> and I think those are some very busy folks over at Narrow Mine at the moment.
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, Ben, the good news for us is not only have you just now signed on to become our WA correspondent, but uh, you're also heading across over here to the east and you'll also be attending uh, AusFly.
4: Yes, I certainly will be. I'm going to jump on Qantas and uh, fly over and spend a couple of days.
1: And uh, you'll be doing some uh, demo flights there, I believe.
4: Um, yes, I'll be doing some uh, demonstration flights on the some of the uh, Zenith aircraft over there. So, uh, Oh,
0: Cool. I yeah, we're thought gonna be-
4: if I'm going to build a uh, Zenith Zodiac, I might as well try and get my bum in one and uh, see what they feel like and fly like.
3: That sounds like a great idea, mate. We've been uh, chatting with Alan Barton from Zen Air Australia, the importers of the Zenith aircraft, and uh, going to try and catch up with him on Thursday to record a bit of an interview. So it'll be great if we can get an interview with him and you can get a couple of uh, flights in the Zenith aircraft and let us know how it goes. Oh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Not that I'm jealous. <laughs> Just got to ask the right questions, Grant. <laughs> uh, don't worry, I'll be uh, targeting the powered parachutes, uh, the gyrocopters, and the hot air balloons, mate.
1: Now, Grant, we mentioned the balloon trek to Osflow there. Uh, what do you know about that?
3: Uh, mate, my understanding is it's a uh, few of the guys, mostly from uh, New South Wales. They're going to be doing some flying in various locations, getting closer and closer to uh, Narrow Mine as they come along. Uh, they're going to be coming through Canoundra and Dubbo and various areas further south as well in, in New South Wales, doing some flying in the area, uh, packing it up, going. Going and moving on to the next location, relaxing next morning, get out, do some flying in that area, then move on to the next location. So they'll work their way closer in and they'll have a lot of fun. They'll be uh, clocking up a few hours, enjoying some ballooning in a lot of great places of Australia and uh, rural New South Wales. And then uh, they, plus a few other Balloonatics, will be uh, doing a bit of a night glow and a few other flights uh, most mornings. If the weather is good, I think we're going to see a few balloons launching uh, at dawn from the mine area. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, joining in with that. Uh, I know a few of the folks who will be involved, and uh, with luck, we'll uh, get a couple of flights in. I may even uh, clock up a couple of hours and put some more entries into that uh shiny new logbook
1: of mine. Outstanding. Now we're going to be up there and uh, as I mentioned in the interview there with David, uh, we'll be uh, doing all the PA systems there. We'll be doing AusFly Radio and we're going to live stream that as well. Now we'll put a link in the show notes. We've got the stream up here now. It's at myradiostream.com slash under. And uh, folks, if you go to that now, even though AusFly hasn't started, you'll hear uh, some of our interviews that are playing there. Alan Van Padge, our tech guy, has already set that up and uh, that's uh, running really, really well. It's on a shoutcast server uh, and we'll also be streaming it on uh, live ATC. Uh, so uh, the guys at Live ATC there have set a channel up for us. So uh, even if you can't get to Ozfly, uh, just like they do at all the major air shows uh, around the world these days, they're live streaming a lot of their coverage and uh, you'll be able to listen to uh, all the action and all the fun uh, as we go through that weekend. So uh, as I mentioned they're a bit of a technical challenge for us, but uh, I think we're up to it. After four years, Grant, I think we can do it. And uh, of course, uh, Ben's a tech guy himself, so when he's not flying, we'll just uh, you know shackle him to the desk.
3: Yeah, get him to help Alan and uh, he and Alan can work on all the technical jargon while uh, you and I just... Uh, sit back, swan around, drink a few drinks and uh, talk to the guests. Yeah, no problem. uh, We've got the easy bit, we just have to talk.
1: Okay so that's Ozfly and of course uh, once again you can check out all the details about that folks at uh, ozfly.com.au Now uh, let's move on, just before we go to shout outs as we uh, round this episode out, I wanted to talk uh, as I mentioned at the top of the episode about some uh, positive things that have uh, happened here at Playing Crazy Down Under. Now of course um, we work really hard at this show and as much as we try and do it as a hobby uh, Grant, I think you'd agree it's pretty much a full time profession these days.
3: Oh mate, if If it uh, it could be, it would be. It'd take all our time, no problem at all, and we'd be bringing you way more content. But sadly, we do have to pay the rent and uh, put food on the table, so we do have to keep up our day jobs. But yeah, when other people are kicking back and relaxing, you and I, we seem to be uh, buried in our work
1: absolutely and uh, it's always nice to be appreciated and always nice for us to pick up a bit of corporate support and we're very proud to announce that our friend Mark Pracy there at JetRide Australia and of course Pracy Racing has uh, signed on for another 12 month sponsorship for the program, jetride.com.au slash pcdu, make sure you hit that URL so that they know you're coming from our website and uh, we'd really appreciate uh, you doing that so that they know that you're listening to the show and appreciating uh, their support of our program Boy Grant, do we uh, appreciate their support
3: Oh mate, it's absolutely wonderful Uh, it's not just the uh, financial actual income that we get from them or the uh, the benefits like uh, the occasional trip overseas or even a ride in a jet, uh, look, it's just great to know that uh, they believe in what we're doing and uh, we in turn can help support them by promoting what they're doing. Uh, so it's a bit of a win-win all around.
1: Fantastic. And as we mentioned, of course, we'll be uh, keeping uh, via our, our various social media streams and on our shows, uh, we'll be keeping you up to date on uh, how they're going over there at uh, Reno 2012. And speaking of corporate sponsorship, Oz Runways have signed on again for uh, several more months uh, sponsoring our program and the- they will be a major sponsor of Playing Crazy Down Under right up until about Avalon uh, starts next year. So uh, Oh, convenient. Yeah, convenient. So uh, really big thanks once again to Oz Runways for uh, believing in what we're doing. And uh, just for that, we'll uh, make sure we don't make Baz work too hard when he's at Ozfly.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, we'll put a microphone under him and see how it's going, but probably do that towards the end and with a couple of beers in hand.
1: Yep, and uh, I tell you what, we're in our fourth year of this program and it is good to see, um, we're starting to get a few more inquiries about sponsorship and advertising on the program and uh, that's one of the ways we differentiate ourselves. We talk a lot about it, but uh, we don't ask for uh, donations. Although you can hit the donate button on our website if you like and we'd appreciate it, but uh, we don't like to ask our audience to put their hands in their pockets on our behalf. So it's, it's really nice that we can fund our activities here. It is a hobby that pays for itself for us. Uh, we, we'd love it if we made ourselves millionaires out of it, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But uh, as long as this hobby pays for itself and allows us to get to places, uh, for example, such as OzFly uh, and other places
3: around uh, Australia, then that's fantastic. Who knows, if it could pay even more than every expense, then we might find some new expenses to put in there, like, oh, I don't know, going over to New Zealand for some of those great air shows and uh, aircraft unveilings that they're having over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Oh, that would be awesome. Okay, let's
1: move on to shout-outs. Uh, Grant, I want to uh, kick it off by doing a shout-out to a friend of the podcast here that we haven't mentioned before, but uh, a lot of people have heard over the last uh, year and a half or so, and that's Richard Pollard. Richard is the voice of our jet ride commercials and uh, several of of our uh, voiceovers for our Avalon coverage last year and he's done a few other uh, voiceovers for the show here and there over the last year or so and uh, we really appreciate Richard he does uh, professional voiceovers he's been a uh, radio announcer and many many other things and he was a former colleague of mine uh, when I was a firefighter and uh, we want to re- wish uh, Richard well as he uh, heads back to New Zealand to uh, start a new chapter in his life so uh, thanks very much Richard for all your help with our show we really do appreciate it and uh, we'll uh, hope to keep in contact with you in the future
3: definite agreement the dulcet tones of Richard will be missed and I uh I don't know, mate. That sounds like another good excuse to go over to New Zealand.
1: Absolutely. And while we're talking of uh, voiceover people, I also want to do a bit of a shout-out to our, our fantastic voiceover lady, Andrea Crook. Now, she's the lady you hear at the front of most of our podcasts these days, talking about all our wonderful sponsors, and uh, she's done some ads for us in the past, and uh, she really looks after us, I can tell you. Well, she's just started a new podcast network called the Waffle Network. and uh, she Really? Was, yeah. Now, it sounds like it's more uh, pointed at the uh, female demographic, and she was saying that, uh, well, I don't know that, you know, mentioning it on our show here, Grant, with our... Uh, huge male demographic would be suitable, but uh, you know, we have, what, about a 12% female audience, so uh, even if you're not female, get over there and check out Waffle Network. She's doing a music show and she's doing one about fitness and uh, she talks about things called fun runs. I I don't know, guys, (laughs) fun and run in the same (laughs) sense.
3: I'm sorry, but fun run, isn't that like military intelligence? You know, political honesty? I mean, you know, dude. Yeah. Oh, mate, that's awesome. When I heard Waffle Network, I thought it was all about cooking, but no. Yeah,
1: that was my hope, but Apparently not. It's only when she's talking about cooking mung beans and stuff, I think.
3: Oh, peace, love, and mung beans, baby.
1: Absolutely. And, of course, you can also catch uh, Andrea. She's actually on uh, the radio station over here in Nova FM. Well, that's not in my demographic, I can tell you. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Andrea, she really looks after us and gives uh, actually gives me a lot of advice on the side about voiceovers and stuff, which brings me to my next shout-out, Grant.
3: Oh, you're on a roll, mate.
1: Absolutely. Well, talking of voiceovers, I've been doing some voiceover training myself.
3: Oh, I noticed your dulcet tones have become
1: more... Dulcet. Yeah, so that's just because I've uh, made some adjustments here on the mixer, mate. But
3: uh, oh, okay, you're bringing in the uh, auto tune, huh?
1: Anyway, uh, many people in the voiceover industry would be familiar with uh, industry legend Gary Mack, and I've actually been doing some uh, voiceover training with Gary. He's been around the industry for well forever, really. And uh, boy, I tell you what, that's been quite challenging, but uh, really, really interesting. Uh, so I wanted to mention Gary here and thank him a lot for all the help that he's given me over the last couple of months. And uh, you can find his website, folks, at garymack.com.au. If you'd like voiceovers done, you won't find And uh, many people that can do it better than Gary Mack, that's for sure.
3: Oh, mate, he uh, does have a bit of a reputation in the scene as being the man. So well done, dude. Uh I'm looking forward to uh, hearing the results of all that training.
1: <laughs> okay, and speaking of sponsorship, we just wanted to uh, say congratulations to our friends over there of the Airplane Geeks podcast as well at airplanegeeks.com, of course. They've finally bitten the bullet and they have brought on a corporate sponsor and good on them, uh, AOPA. Yay! The, uh, the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association over there in the US has uh, sponsored the Airplane Geeks podcast. And uh, I know they've been a little bit uh, worried about uh, you know taking on a sponsor and going that way, but uh, we've been doing it since Episode 10 and, uh, well, we've got uh, three or four listeners. So it hasn't affected our audience at all.
3: On the whole, it uh, it does seem to help. You know, you can you can put so much in for love and uh, and effort and you know so much of your personal time in, but having someone who can chip in a little to help you get to events, as uh, AOPA did with helping David get to uh, Oshkosh and things like that, it really does make a difference. And so far, I mean, it's been going for a number of episodes. I haven't heard a difference. They're still as zany. They're still as interesting and they still as fun. So uh, well done, guys, and uh, here's to many more episodes, and well done for the support of AOPA.
1: Yeah, and they still have a fantastic Australia desk report on their show every
3: oh, week. Oh, totally.
1: Okay, that's all my mentions out of the way, but uh, before we go, uh, Ben, you've got a very important event over there in the West that you'd like to mention.
4: Yeah, we've actually got two. The first one is the Sport Aircraft Builders Club of uh, Western Australia it has their annual fly-in, um, and this year it's titled the Year of the Owner Builder. Um, the Sport Aircraft Builders Club are actually a club based around building home-built aircraft. So that'll be an interesting one to go and see at Serpentine Airfield on uh, Sunday, the 30th of September.
3: Oh, mate, I could tell you, if it was uh, the Sport Aircraft Builders Club and uh, I was a member, yes, you'd know which aircraft was mine. It was the one mouldering in a pile of bits sitting over here (laughs) that once was together, but all I did was look at it and it fell apart, you know. Uh,
4: It's not that hard, Grant. If you can fly a balloon, I reckon you can glue a plane together. The second event is uh, Westfly, which is the inaugural uh, Flylight Recreation Aviation Australia Westfly event uh, held out in uh, York, which is about an hour and a quarter east of Perth at a uh, private airfield called uh, Whitegum. That should be an interesting event. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people going over to have a look at that and uh, Matt Hall will be there from uh, Matt Hall Racing. So he'll be there coming over to probably do some family duties and uh, he'll be there to meet and greet the crowd for about three or four days. So he's uh, over here for a couple of days.
1: Fantastic. Absolutely. And, folks, you can find out more about that at westfly.com.au. Ben, and you'll be heading off to attend that too? Uh,
4: Yes, I will be. Yes, I'll be there for uh, two days, Saturday and Sunday, and uh, to have a look around, grab some photos, and maybe uh, pin a couple of people down and have a word to them.
1: Fantastic! We'll be able to, uh, you know, get that uh, wonderful new Zoom H4 recorder of yours uh, into action.
4: Certainly, it's been sitting on the table for a while, and it uh, it needs a christening.
1: And just the URL for the uh, Sport Builders Club there. I didn't mention it. It's at uh, SABC. That's Sierra Alpha Bravo Charlie au. If people want to find out more about their event over there at Serpentine Airfield. Well, uh, Ben, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show this evening, and I want to thank you for uh, coming aboard with the team. Uh, as we said at the top, there, it's uh, it, it's really great to have some reach over there in WA. We just find it so difficult to get over there from Melbourne with our day jobs and uh, trying to get uh, work around family and all that other stuff. So, uh, having you over there and uh, picking up some interviews and letting us know what's going on in the aviation scene over there is going to be a real positive thing for our program. We really appreciate it.
4: Certainly, that's uh, not a problem. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on in WA at the moment um, in the aviation world, and hopefully, I can get out. Uh, to the various sectors and uh, have a chat to a couple of people and get some interviews and uh, yeah, publicise what's going on in Western Australia. That'd be great.
1: Fantastic. Uh, as always, folks, if you'd like to find out more about uh, Ben or any of us, you can go to playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the tab that says About Us and then scroll down and say who we are and that'll tell you all about uh, at least what we'd like you to know about us. It might not all, <laughs> might not all be true but uh, you know we, we try and make it sound as jazzy as possible.
3: Well, it's the bits that uh, well we know about, we want you to know about and uh, we don't want the cops to to know about yeah what's substantial the limitations these days yeah not long enough not long enough
4: that's uh, exactly right
1: <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much for listening folks as always we hope you enjoyed it we'll see you all at Ozfly, but until then I tell you what if you're doing anything else but flying to Ozfly, well just remember this it's what's down under that counts folks
6: you've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under hosted by Steve Visher and Grant McCarran. show notes links to our forum Facebook fan page YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.plaincrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5
4: by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies Online Media Podcast.
3: The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, Please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com.
0: Thanks, folks.